Good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, you please open them up to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 37, Luke chapter 37, uh, verse 34 will be the text we'll be unpacking. Luke chapter 37, verse 34. It's just one verse. But while you're turning them out, I'll ask you a question. It's rhetorical, so you don't have to answer it. Um, but if I had to ask you the question, how would you finish this sentence? The Son of Man came. How, what are some of the things that you might say to someone who asked you that? You might say, the Son of Man came preaching, and you'd be right. He, he did. You might say, the Son of Man came to teach us how to live moral lives, and he certainly did that. The Sermon of the Mount is a great example of how we should strive after Christ and, and live for the kingdom. You might say that Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God, and he, he certainly did uh, come to do that. But when we look in Scripture, what we see is that Christ gives us, or Scripture gives us three times finishing of that sentence. The Son of Man came and it answers it three times. And, and so let's look at uh, the first one we find in, in Mark 10, verse 45. It says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Many We've just preached on that recently. Again, we see something very similar in Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus says this, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We might have heard of those ones before, right? Very similar. Describe a purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, not to be served. He came to seek and save the lost. So it gives us purpose, but it doesn't give us the how. How did Jesus intend on serving us? How did Jesus intend on, on seeking and saving the lost? Well, one of the ways in which Christ does this, one of the primary ways in which Jesus does this is found in our passage this morning. Let us read it. Verse 34 of Luke 7. It says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let's look at that first part. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Isn't that incredible? That the way that Christ has come, according to Luke, to achieve his purpose of serving the world, of, of seeking and saving them, one of the ways he was going to achieve this was through food, was sitting down and having a meal, was to eat and drink. Absolutely incredible. When I, when I saw that, it, it blew my mind that that was one of the primary ways in which Christ had come to achieve his mission. And and it's quite shocking, the language that is used here. And I know we don't get it because we're not first century Jews. But really, for a, the, the, the understanding of Son of Man was meant to be this, this man who was going to come with authority given to him by God, and he was to rule the nations. Now we know Jesus is going to come with authority of God, and he will rule the nations, but he didn't come like that in the beginning. And so this man who was to come was was to have established the kingdom, to rule nations, not eat and drink. But for the Jews, man, he was to come and liberate them from Rome. The presses of Rome established Israel as the powerhouse of the world. He was to come. That was his purpose. That was what he was going to think. They thought he was going to come and do. And man, yes, he would eat and drink, but it would be a side product of what they were going to, he was going to do. Something for nourishment, not as a primary thing. 
eating and drinking. Oh, maybe once he had established Israel as the, the powerhouse of the world, then there'd be a big banquet and he would eat and then he could enjoy some food. But before then, no, 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 that's just something on the side. But it seems in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus ate and drank regularly. Often. Actually, in the Gospel of Luke, it seems that Jesus is going to a meal or coming from a meal. He seems, and if he's not coming or going to a meal or coming from a meal, he's talking about food. He uses his illustrations about food regularly to a point that the Pharisees who disliked Jesus, disliked what he stood for, didn't like his message, would start falsely accusing him that he is a drunkard and a glutton. Now, a drunkard is someone who drinks too much and a glutton is someone who eats too much. But they would point and say, look, he's just eating all the time. Look, every time we look, he's eating. Every time we look, he's having a drink. Now, Jesus wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunkard. But they saw him all the time doing it. Out of frustration, they falsely accused him of such a thing. To a point even where they go to his disciples. And they go to them and say, man, look at John's disciples. They fast and pray. Even our disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, they fast and pray. But you guys, you just seem to be eating and drinking. You know, that's all you're doing. Why? Because for Christ, this was a big part of his mission. He was going to seek and save the lost through sitting down and having food with them. For Christ, his mission strategy was to sit around a table eat some food that would go into the evening and chat and evangelize and disciple. We, we see this example of this in Luke 19, where Jesus is walking down. He's on his way to Jerusalem with purpose to go and die. He's heading there intently, was just passing through a town, and there's this little man named Zacchaeus, a wee little man, who had climbed up into a tree, and Jesus stops by and says to him, what? Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having food. I'm going to come and eat with you. I'm having supper. Let's chow. Let's eat. And the end of it, what happens out of the story, a tax collector, one of the worst sinners, we'll get to that later, he comes along and he's at the end, repents, gives his life to Christ, pays back all the money he's stolen. And at the end of that, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. It's around a dinner table that Jesus brings someone to salvation. He would have discipled around the table as well. Around food, it would have been important. We see this with Martha and Mary. One of them's doing all the cooking, the other one's sitting down and listening. But it's around food. This context, food is coming. And there's food that everyone's being served and eating, that Jesus is teaching, that Jesus has to then stop and say, no, no, um, she does, she's got the right way. She's sitting and listening. But it's around the context of food, discipling, growing, teaching, pointing people to Christ. As he sat down and showed why God had come, why, what, how God was going to usher in his kingdom. It was around food that he did it. Isn't that amazing? To sit down with some fish, some bread, and a pitcher of wine and just disciple and teach. It's no wonder then that when we see that Christ's primary method for missions was food, that hospitality is such a big punt for us as Christians in the New Testament. We see examples of this. Um, in, we see a couple of examples of, of this uh, need in, in Romans 12, verse 12. It says this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek 
to show hospitality. I love this. He says, seek it. Not let it be a haphazard thing. Not when you randomly bump into a friend you haven't seen in a long time, invite them over. No, no, but be intentional. Remember, I say this often, there's a difference between having good intentions and being intentional. We need to be intentional, says Paul here. Seek it out. Seek hospitality. Again, he's, uh, uh, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 4 verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't grumble about it. Man, I know how we grumble. I, I do it. I, I, hospitality is certainly not one of my spiritual gifts. And so Alyssa is far better at it than I. And I get tired. I come back from a, a, a long days with the work and we've got someone coming over. And sometimes don't you just sit there and I'm just being a little bit vulnerable this morning going, oh man, I wish they weren't coming. <laughs> I would rather not. But Peter goes, no, 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 that's not the case. Don't grumble about it. If they've got strong opinions and you know that opinionated person's coming over, don't grumble. It's been a long day at work. Don't grumble. Give hospitality without grumbling. Jesus says these incredible words in Matthew 10 verse 40. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There's this incredible thing about hospitality is that when we do it, and we receive strangers in and they come and they receive us, Man, there is this chance that Christ might be received in it. Beautiful. Salvation is at stake for food. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Isn't that amazing? Hospitality, friends, is not just having your best friends over all the time. It's not. Actually, the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So it might have been happening to the, the church that, or the, the, the people that he's speaking to. He's saying, do not neglect to show with strangers. And may I suggest that though we are small in the room this morning, I'm sure not everyone knows everyone. And the beauty of this is that we can even just start to ask one another around our tables. We can start there. It's very simple. We all know you're Christian. Come, you come here, got connection. Invite each other over. Hey, invite me over. Inv I like food. <laughs> invite more people over. Let's have a community that does. But, no, but remember, this is strangers as well. These are our neighbors that we don't know next door to us, or people down the street, or someone you bump into. Be intentional to seek hospitality, but even to the strangers. Because it's around those moments that evangelism takes place gloriously. You see, what Jesus does is he takes this meal, this simple act of eating and drinking, and he uses it to enact grace, enact community, enact hope. He takes these moments to show people grace, to show them love and community, and to show them hope. And this was his strategy because he knew how powerful food is so that he might do that. And the challenge for us is we can do the same. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three stories. And each story, one will show grace, one will show community, and one will show hope. And it'll all be around food and Jesus and how we did it. And we, man, maybe we can see how we can do it as well. So the first one is in, in Luke 5 verses 27 uh, to 32. Luke 5, 27 to 32, it goes as follows. Just one back in your Bible, if you're there. 
Luke writing says this about Jesus. After he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. There's the food. Great feast. Lots of food in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Beautiful. The problem that the Pharisees have here is not the fact that they're having a party. We'll see in the next story a party that the Pharisees are throwing. They like to throw parties themselves. The problem that the Pharisees have here is the guest list. They're upset with who Jesus is having food with. And according to them, they say, Jesus, you are eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, and I'll give it to the Pharisees here, were horrible people. They were the worst of the worst in society. Not because they were just tax collectors because they take our money, but because they would take, say, the Roman government wanted 15%. They would go and ask for 25. With a Roman soldier next to them, demanding the money, and though the average person would know that they were giving too much and their business was being crippled, their money was being stolen, they could do nothing about it. And they would have to hand over. And that in itself would be Enough to make you hate the tax collectors. Getting a salary and stealing your money. Wealthy, wealthy people. But it was worse than that. It was worse than that because they were essentially seen as traitors. Why? Because who were they working for? They were working for the Romans. Who came in, killed your, your sons and daughters, who oppressed you as a nation, who were taxing you heavily and to, uh, to uh, do their wars. Essentially, these were Jews that had sh- uh, jumped ship to work for the enemy to press God's people, and essentially to go against God. So the society hated tax collectors. But there was more to this than just tax collectors. There were more others as well. There were so-called sinners. And to understand this, we need to understand the culture of food and why this was such a taboo for Jesus to be the food in Jesus' day. And I would argue as well, in our day, was a rich ceremonial uh, significance or symbol of friendship, of intimacy and unity. To sit down with someone in Jesus' day was to say, we are friends, I am with you, we are together in life. It was this amazing unity thing. It was meant to be richly friendship's significance in in intimacy and unity. Beautiful thing. But it's even more so than just that. Um, You've got to understand that for a Jew, you couldn't have food with a Gentile. Why? Because... Leviticus had come along and was under Moses and said you couldn't eat certain foods. And so for a Jew, eating their foods in their way was a, a proud, significant thing. It created a cultural barrier between them and the rest of the world. Because you could never make sure that you could never eat with a Gentile because you could never know if the food was kosher or not. And so it just became this isolated hub of we eat and we stay alone. We don't hang out with those sinners over there that eat bad stuff. But even more so by Jesus' day. I hope you're tracking with me here. It got even worse in Jesus' day. Why? Because when the Pharisees came along, they desperately wanted the people of Israel to be pure. Because they thought, well, man, if the nation is pure, 
then Christ, or then or Christ, then God will establish us as the powerhouse of the world. Then he's going to bless us like he said he would. And so for them, purity was so important because it meant then God will bless us once we reach purity. And so they gave up and above the 600 laws that God gave in Leviticus. They started to add their own one in to make sure people were extra good. And that included all areas of life, including food. And they thought to themselves, how can we make this food thing more pure than it already is? Well, what's the hardest um, standard of food that we all have to live by? Well, the, the priests. They had their own dietary laws that were up and above everybody else's. They were far more difficult to obtain. Okay, let's make it then that everyone has to eat like a priest. But the problem with this was that to eat like the priest was exorbitantly expensive. Way out of the price range for a majority of the nation. An average Jew in Jesus' age would probably eat fish once a week. Never mind all the red meat and all the stuff that was required of the priests to feed. And so the problem became was even if you desperately desired it in your heart, you really, really wanted to eat like, um, eat like the Pharisees had demanded and you couldn't afford it, you just couldn't do it. Your family was at stake, you needed to make sure you could eat and survive. And the Pharisees turned around to these middle class and lower income people and said to them, you sinners, you are sinners. You don't care about God. You don't care about his nation. You don't care about purity. You are sinners. And what they did is they created a gulf even inside the Jewish nation of going, you sinners, we're righteous. Now remember, these are meant to be the men of God. These are meant to be the people that know God and are drawing the nation to purity and to live for God. But instead, what they were doing were pushing people away, adding extra laws that were not required. They weren't sinners. I want you to look at what Luke said. How did Luke call them? He said, and a great feast in his house, and there were a large company of tax collectors and others. It's only when the Pharisees come along and say, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They weren't sinners, but the tax collectors, I mean the Pharisees had gone, they aren't good enough because they can't keep to the standard we require. And they pushed people out. So what was Jesus doing here? Man, he's sitting down with some real sinners and some people who were perceived to be sinners who weren't. Who said, you weren't good enough for God. You aren't great. You are a sinner. You do not care. And he comes and he sits down and has a meal that shows intimacy and friendship and unity. He's going, they've created a gulf to separate you from God. But I want you to know that I have come here and I am God. I have crossed this gulf. I have crossed this divide. You can have me. He enacts grace in the simple thing of having a meal. He's not casting outside the Levitical laws. No, man, he was fulfilling them. He's not saying purity is not important, but he's saying purity is found in my death. I will atone for your sins. I will make you whole. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I will write God's law on your heart. It is through the simple act of food that Christ enacts grace to a people who were burdened by a sin that was not theirs and sins that they had done, the tax collectors. But going, you can 
be saved in me. You do not have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get yourself better. All you need is me. Beautiful. He enacts grace through a simple act of meal. Now, church, I, I, I want us to, now how does it apply to us? Man, we find ourselves sometimes as, if you will, the religious elite, the Christians, where those who do not know Christ, those who are considered sinners of this world, and maybe are, like the tax collectors, we sometimes create a gulf between them and us, and we say, you can't be with us until you sort your life out. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is come to Jesus as you are, then you're saved, he will sort you out. Not sort yourself out first. No, 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 no. That's what we're called to do. And man, we sometimes do that. Now hear me, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it a few times, but it's important. Do we believe it? Then it will be shown in our tables. Our doctrine is shown in our tables and who we have around it. We might say, Joe, I believe that with all my heart. But friends, who do we have around, sitting around, having intimate meals, having friendships with? Only those that look like us, righteous and pure, then I might just have to say, and I'm guilty of this, I might just have to say, maybe we don't believe it as much as we should. But if we truly grasp it, man, there'll be people that are considered far off, but we say, come. And as we discuss Christ openly, as we share our lives with them, as we share this intimate relationship with them, not only do we get enacted through just a simple meal, but we get a point to the one who died for them and who they need in conversation. We get enacted through action and we get to proclaim it through words. It's a beautiful thing. It's important. We can use our tables to enact grace and show grace to the lost world just like Christ did. Let's look at our next one. In Luke 7, if we hop back to the passage we were at, the next section, Luke 7, verses 36 to 39. This is our next story. Jesus here uses in Acts community. Let us read. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, said in, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. He has food happening again. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, Scripture doesn't make it clear, but this lady is more likely a prostitute. When she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Let's stop there. It seems in this meal what's happened is there is this uh, meal that's taken place, and it's probably the meal's done. Food's been served, it's been the dishes have been taken away by the servants to get cleaned. And uh, like we do sometimes when you finish a meal, we say, who wants coffee? Who wants some coffee and some biscuits or some dessert? And you sit down and you drink and you chat and the evening goes on. It seems like that's where this, this uh, is happening. The meal's done. 
they're talking and being at a Pharisee's house, you can assume that they're probably talking about um, some God's word. That's what's a passion on their heart and questioning Jesus, challenging him, and, and he's talking about it. Now, to understand the story even more, we need to understand that in Jesus' day, most of the houses had semi-public areas, like courtyards that went into the public. And so what would happen is people who were strolling by could hear conversation and even contribute. Visitors could just pop in. And sometimes the poor would stand there at a big meal knowing there will be food going, can we get? And they'll be waiting for some leftovers. So this lady, this woman of uh, the city, this prostitute is probably out and about, hears about Jesus being there, and this is how she's gone. She's not a great cat burglar. She's just kind of strolled straight through the semi-public area into the dining room, uninvited, and what she does is starts to rub Jesus' feet. Now, whose house has she walked into? A Pharisee's. They were all about purity, right? Now, they could not control the nation's purity, but they could control their homes, And to have a woman like this walk into their house would have been shocking, to say the least. Uninvited, unwanted, like a disease, why is she here? She needs to get out. And she's rubbing your guest's feet, touching him. Shocking. But probably even more shocking is what she's doing. She is doing stuff that's extremely intimate. She's touching Jesus, she's rubbing him, she's letting her hair down to wipe her tears. Now, in Jesus' day, it doesn't mean much to us, but in Jesus' day, letting your hair down was something you only left for the bedroom. Here she is, letting her hair down. She's anointing his feet with ointment, some perfume. And so, here is this woman, and you can imagine the Pharisees are uncomfortable. You can hear in the tone, like, if this man knew who she was, he's, he's not happy about what's taking place. But even more shockingly, is not the fact that she's there or the fact of what she's doing, but rather the fact that Jesus says nothing. He doesn't stop her. He doesn't say, sorry, that is unacceptable, you can't do that, or you can't even do it more politely, go, this is uncomfortable, I see your heart, but this is just not the way we do things. He doesn't say that, he just says nothing. His reputation's at stake. Now, he will answer it a bit later, but what we see here is the Pharisee goes, oh, if this man were a prophet, he would know who, what kind of woman this is. Jesus does. He does know what kind of woman she is. But Jesus does not mind. That this woman's identity, though it be bad, be attached to his. He doesn't. He doesn't mind to be known as the friend of sinners. In fact, this is the story we, our, our, our main verse, verse 34, he's a glutton and a friend of sinners. Luke goes and enforces that idea with the story straight afterwards. Luke doesn't try to defend him. Luke doesn't try to prove that he's not. No, Luke goes and tells an extremely shocking story to show that he is a friend of sinners. Just like Christ likes to identify himself with you and me through these things. As sinners, as unwanted, so man, Christ shows it with this woman. She is able to come to him. Where the rest of society and everyone in that room would have cast her out, not have been able to be a part of what was going on, Jesus allows her to stay. Jesus takes the most marginalized in society, the most maligned in society, and he says, come. We can be friends. Come. We can have a relationship. With Christ, even the most unwanted become wanted. The most lonely become unlonely. 
the most strangered apart person is no longer a stranger. And he uses this wonderful meal to do so. He doesn't cast her out. He brings her in. Friends, we have this wonderful opportunity around our tables to bring people in who aren't normally in it. We have taboos around certain people, and we think they should not be around us, but really what Christ is saying is bring them into this community through food. Bring them in. Now, we last week we spoke about, and I'm going to attach it to this if you will, allow me to. Last week we spoke about diversity. That the gospel is diverse in who it is trying to reach. It's not for a set person. It's not for a set race, a set culture. It's not set for, it is for everyone. And when Christ died, he died for who? The whole world. Every single person needs Jesus. And the beauty of that means that when we stand at the foot of the cross, it is a living playing field and every tribe and every nation and every tongue equally deserves Christ more than the other, equally deserves a sin, I mean a death is more than the other, but we have been graciously saved. This is what we believe, right? And if you don't, come and talk to me afterwards because I promise you this is what the gospel is about. And if you don't understand that, you're missing an important element of the gospel. But we believe it. But what happens when our doctrine, how does it reflect? It reflects around our tables. Do we believe that the gospel is diverse? It's for every generation, every race, every culture, Every language, every, both for man and female. Do we believe that? Then, friends, our tables need to start reflecting that. It does. Our tables need to start reflecting more in diversity. But not, this is not just about diversity. It's included in here. It is also about those who might feel out because of who they are. We bring them in. We show them the wonder of the gospel. You are accepted by Christ. We love you. Warts and all, we love you. And the beauty of the gospel is he's died for you and he, and he is there for you. That's what Christ uses a meal to bring in the most maligned and the most marginalized of society to say you can have him. And it starts with us enacting it. You can have us. Why? Because Christ has everyone and he will take everyone. So we can't point to them and say, man, Jesus loves you. He wants you. He wants your life. He cares for you, but we don't really. Oh man, but around food, there is intimacy. There is grace. There is this unity that comes and we say, friends, we love you. But man, there's one that loves you more and his name's Jesus. It starts at the table. So important for us. Lastly, let's look at the next one. Jesus uses a meal to enact hope. Now, the, the story I'm going to tell is found in all of the Gospels. It's the story of, of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that we find that happens in all four Gospels. John is very different to the other three, but he finds it important to include it here. So I'm not going to read it because it's a real long story. It's like a whole chapter and we just don't have the time. But I'm going to, I'm going to tell it to you if you don't mind. Um, what has happened is they find Jesus and his disciples have been casting out demons and they are teaching. And a massive crowd has followed them and they find themselves in the middle of the wilderness. 
Uh, things are a bit desolate. There's no place to go. And so Jesus is concerned. It's coming towards evening time. He looks at this massive crowd and he notices that they're going to go to bed hungry. They're not going to be able to get home in time. They're going to go to bed hungry. And he starts to have compassion on them. And he turns to one of his disciples, Philip, and says, hey, how are we going to feed these guys? 5,000 men. Now, there were more women and children. If you came to me and said, Joe, you next week have to feed 5,000 men. I don't know how I would do it with all the supermarkets and stuff around. I would stress. But here Jesus says to him on the day, how are we going to feed 5,000 men in this wilderness? He's really testing Philip. And Philip goes, man, it's like a year's worth of wages nearly that we have. We just can't do it. But there's another guy named Andrew. He's, um, he's a little bit of a, uh, a, a guy on the side. He's not a big disciple by any means in, in terms of telling of the Gospels. But we see him here. He has a bit of faith and he goes out and he finds five loaves and two fish. A little boy has them. And he brings the boy up with the food and he says, Jesus, I have found five loaves and two fish. And then as he does it, he kind of realizes how crazy this sounds. Like he has five loaves and two. Oh, no, that's not going to really work. He kind of pulls back. He has faith, but he kind of just goes, no, I'm not sure if that's going to work. And Jesus is being gracious, takes the food, looks to heaven, and he, he blesses the food. And they just start to dish it out. And these up to, I'm sure, a theologian's guess, up to 10,000 people get fooled. Their tummies are bursting. There's 12 baskets of food left over. And as they're done and as they're sitting there, there's this grumbling that starts to happen in the crowd. John tells them that Jesus perceives that they're going to come and take him as king. Why? Because they start going, well, hang on a second. This guy's done something. We're going to make him as king. And Jesus does what he normally does in scripture when they want to do something to him. He doesn't want them to do. He just becomes a ninja, goes through the crowd and he disappears. No one knows where he went. And he goes up into a mountain. Now I want to stop there for a moment and ask why. Why did they want to make him king? I mean, Jesus has been healing, casting out demons. Jesus has done amazing stuff in his ministry so far. He has healed the blind. He has healed the deaf. He has healed the dumb. He has healed the lame. He's even risen people from the dead. But every time he's done this, he's never received such a reaction that they want to make him king. Why here? Well, you've got to understand the Jewish context. What are they thinking? This reminds them, this act that Jesus does reminds them of something very important in their past. Maybe, let me explain it, maybe you'll catch it. They find themselves in a wilderness, no food, and miraculously God provides food for them. It reminds them of manna. And they start going, well, hang on a second. The one who's meant to come is like a Moses. Moses liberated from Israel. We're under the oppression of Rome. Maybe... This guy in a wilderness is providing us food. This guy is the one who's to come. This guy's the king. This guy's the Messiah. And there's this buzz as everyone starts, the penny starts to drop in their heads. This is the one that's going to come and liberate us from Rome. But Jesus had not come to liberate them from Rome. He'd come to do a far greater work. And so he doesn't want to become king. And so what does he do? Is he becomes the ninja and goes up into the, the mountain. He goes up into the mountain. Nightfall takes place. A whole bunch of things happen. There's a storm on the sea with the disciples. Jesus walks on water, just Jesus' things. And he gets across to the other side to a town called Capernaum. Now, morning takes place. Everyone wakes up. Tummies are no longer as full as they were. A little hungry, bit of a grumble. Where's that Jesus guy? Where's the guy that makes food out of nothing? 
And they look for them, they can't find them. That's a problem. And so they start searching. And man, they search. They must have scoured everywhere. Because he was across the Sea of Galilee in another town. So they must have looked in other towns and not found him. And eventually they come around and they find him in Capernaum. They come to him and say, teacher, where have you been? We've been looking for you. We're kind of hungry. And Jesus says to them, he says to them, you have not seen the signs, but you want you full of loaves. Essentially what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you have not interpreted the signs and understood who I really am and what I've come to do, and that's why you want me, but rather because you're hungry. You want me to be your puppet and to feed you and to take care of you like you think you should. And a, a conversation breaks out, and there's a whole long dialogue that happens, but essentially what Jesus says to them is saying, you want something that's temporal. You want just this food that's going to come along. But friends, I've got something far greater for you. It's eternal. You won't ever hunger again. And imagine in Jesus' day going, you will never hunger again if you have what I have. They go, give us this. We want it. If we could have this food, we want it. And Jesus looks at them and says, I am it. I am the bread of life. And if whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And whoever thirsts, whoever believes in me will never thirst again. I am the very hope in which you desire. I am what you need. You want, you want life. A, a great life of success and, and freedom. But friends, I've come not to free you from Rome, but I've come to free you from something greater in its sin. Jesus says, you want success and a good life. I've not come to give you a good life. I've come to give you an eternal life. I've come to give you something far greater, says Christ. And in this meal, Jesus takes the moment to enact a greater hope to a people. I am the hope, says Christ. I am what you need. Not some random king. Oh, he's coming again as the glorious king. But the hope that we need, church, is Jesus. That's what we need. And the beauty of our tables is that we get to show hope, we get to give hope, and we get to point to the one who is hope. We get to sit down with people who are struggling in life, who are going through hardships, and we get to not only just say, oh, Jesus is your hope, but we get to show it in our actions. Come shoulder to shoulder with food and, and drink and, get, and say to them, man, we are here for you. We get to do it in our actions. But not only that, we get to speak with a, a tone in our voices. There's a greater hope to come. So while the world and life might be hard to us and things might be difficult, what we get to do around our tables to those who have no hope is say, man, don't worry, there's a time to come. This might be hard, but man, Jesus is coming again. The kingdom is coming. That's what we long for. And we get to echo the words of Paul in Romans 8 verse 18 for our consider the sufferings of this present time. Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And not only do they experience it through action, but they get to hear it in our actions and in our words. But around that, as we love them, and as we show them in our talk and in our own hope that we have, we get to say to them, but friends, the hope that you need is Jesus. The hope that you need is not a new job. And your job is not going to give you what you need. What you need is Christ. What you need is not another person. 
What you need is not a loved one that you have lost. What you need is not an ex-husband or wife that has left you. What you need is Christ. And we get to show them that with our actions, our talk, and our point in acclamation of Jesus. But it takes place around a table where we get to just eat and drink. It's glorious. No wonder why Christ chose this as his main method. He, I mean, Jesus is creative. Can we just all acknowledge that this morning? He kind of spoke this creation into being. He's pretty creative. He could have arrived 2,000 years ago and come up with an incredible mission strategy. Started a ministry with an event planning. He could have come up with something that would last for thousands of years and done what he wanted. But he didn't come with events and programs and different things like that. But rather, how did he come? He came eating and drinking. That was his missions of choice, to eat and drink. Now hear me here. Meals do not save people. The gospel does. Jesus does. What meals do is they create an opportunity for us to be able to point and show the wonderful hope that we have in Christ in action and in talk as we proclaim him beautifully, absolutely beautifully. And I, and I think for us, as we've been talking about know your neighbors, sometimes we ask the question, how? How are we going to do it? I think this is one of the best ways ever. Let's just eat. Invite people over for food. I, I truly believe that missions, the heartbeat of missions is our tables, is our home. That missions to the nations begins with our homes and our tables. Just having people over for lunch, supper, I think sometimes we've made missions this great big thing. And, and don't hear me what I'm not saying here. The big events are important, but they're not everything. We're running a holiday club where 600 kids are going to come, and they're going to hear the gospel for five days. Beautiful. And thousands of people are going to be impacted because of those kids going home and singing songs and telling the stories that they learned. It is awesome. But friends, we do not have to come up with these most extravagant ideas under the sun. All we have to do is have meals. And we've made meals a big thing. Maybe, I mean, missions a big thing, maybe because we think it is too difficult to share our faith outside of this context. Maybe we, because we think that God doesn't use the ordinary, but he rather uses the extraordinary, but that's just not the case. God loves to use the ordinary. Man, he, ordinary resonates with ordinary people. And Christ will use the ordinary meal to reach the ordinary person to point them to the extraordinary one, Jesus. Let's not leave missions to the professional. Man, we had Terran come down recently, and he preached wonderfully. Some of you were there. He did awesome. People were saved. But it's not for them only. Often those people get to come to those big events because they've had friendships. Very seldomly does someone say, hey, I'm going to go to that evangelist thing without a, a friendship happening first. So while God uses those things, man, it needs a friend to say, hey, come along with me. Use them that way. 
It's extremely important that we realize that this is something super simple for us to do for the glory of Christ. Again, I want to say, parties and meals aren't enough. The gospel is. But friends, if you have a passion for people and a passion for Jesus and you have people around your table, you are on mission. All you have to do is, you don't have to have a sermon prepared. You don't have to have a, a, a testimony of some sort. All you have to do is be attentive and open about your faith. That's it. Attentive and open about your faith. We're going to have communion. We're running a bit late this morning. We're going to take communion. But I, what I loved about this morning, that communion was here, is we come around a table. Jesus sits down again around food with his disciples. And he has this table of food and he breaks this bread and he takes a cup and he says, this is my body in which is broken for you. And he gives it to them. This is the blood that I've shed for you and he gives it to them. Jesus uses a meal to enact salvation, something that was to come, his death. Now, church, when we partake of this, all I want us to do is be reminded of how Christ, when we were outcast, when we were marginalized, when we were out there and no one wanted us, how Christ came for us. Let that stir hope in your hearts. Let that stir you for the kingdom. And may I ask you to put a name in your head. Is, is there someone that God is laying on your heart already going, hey, let's invite that person over. Let's love him. Let's invite him over. I'm going to pray for this, and then I'm going to ask Brian if he would come up, and Peter if he would come up, and we're going to serve it. I'm just going to do the prayer quickly. Lord, we are incredibly grateful that you loved us so much that you would die for us. That you loved us, that you would leave heaven and the glories of heaven to come to this earth to be loved. To love us, to serve us, to seek and save us to die for us. Thank you, Jesus. We did not deserve it. I pray, Lord, as we partake of this, that we would be blown away again by the grace that you have given us. But Lord, at the same time, would you birth in our hearts a deep desire for those who don't know you. And may you give us the courage and the boldness to just simply have people around our table for food. And we point them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.